0: Second Samuel chapter twenty-one. If you'll make it way to Second Samuel chapter twenty-one. Also, the devotional tonight. I'm excited to to see a bunch of young people gathering. I'm I, I, you have to you have to be at Paul Wallace's house and put up with the Paul Wallace effect, but you're going to have a great time. And I'm appreciating those youth events that are out there like that. in In the book of Second Samuel, as it's about to close out chapter twenty-one, he starts throwing a hodgepodge of things that happened into this chapter. It uh, this is not chronologically ordered properly. What happens as we, uh, as we read tonight, this event that's described happened much earlier in David's reign. We're toward the end of it, and yet it just kind of throws it in there. I'm not sure why they do it this way, but here's what ends up being the point of the story is that there was a mess that David inherited that he had nothing to do with creating. Sometimes... You have to clean up messes you didn't create. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah? Lafon's <laughs> over there going, I'm major. No, no. It's, it's this idea that sometimes, and it, it's not fair uh, or whatever, but sometimes you just have to come along and deal with something you didn't even have a responsibility in creating. What does a man after God's own heart do about that? 2 Samuel. Before we read this, though, there's a couple of things you need to know. Uh, First of all, here's principle number one. It's been a long time since I've seen the slide, so if you go ahead and hit the, yeah, okay. So it's Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's one of those pivotal chapters in the law of the Jews, and it says a a bunch of of verses about, if you keep the covenant uh, with me, here are the blessings you'll get. It's this wonderful list of You'll get a great crop and you'll defeat your enemies and, and, and you'll have plenty of babies and all this stuff. All right. And then wraps it up and says, and by the way, if you don't keep the covenant, here are the curses. And there's twice as many curses. Your land won't produce, you, you know, and you'll be defeated by your enemies and all these other things. The idea is this is a self-diagnostic when, some, when these bad things start appearing in your life, it needs to trigger in your mind, if that's happening, there's something amiss that I need to fix. That's what God is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So I want you to know that that's there. That's one principle you need to know. Here's another one. It's the principle of Numbers 35, and here's what it says in Numbers 35, um, verse 33, beginning, You shall not pollute the land in which you live. For blood pollutes the land, not people, land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that was shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. This is one of those weird things we don't talk about but you'll see it every once in a while in the Old Testament where the land cries out to God for justice. What cried out about, for instance, Abel's blood? The land cried out. That's a weird thing. We don't think of the land as being a living thing, but in God's eyes, when you are living in a land and your behavior offends him it also taints the land and it has to be atoned for it's a it's a strange thing we don't think about this melissa and i were reading the other day on sodom and gomorrah's story and how god heard the cry from sodom who was crying all the sodomites were evil wicked people he could only find four righteous right so who was crying to god And all I can think about is, apparently, the land itself, the city itself, cried out because the city wants to be obedient to God, the land, but God's people are polluting the land, and God's going to eventually hear the land's cry, and he's going to do something about it, which may be why, when groups of people get so sinful that the land is polluted by their sin, God has no choice but to vomit them out. That's what the Old Testament says. And every civilization has ended up this way. The Roman Empire was doing fine. Then they started polluting the land with their sin. And God put up with it for so long and then said, that's it. I don't know if that's still in effect today, but America should take notice of this. I don't know. This law isn't stated anywhere else. I just want you to know that's in the background of this chapter. Then there's a story you need to remember and uh, as, we, as we look at uh, 2 Samuel, keep your finger there and go to Joshua chapter 9. You're going to remember this story, some of you. And some of you might have forgotten this. But God told the people, when you go into uh, the Israelites, when you go into the land of promise, I want you to drive everybody out. Either kill them or drive them out of the land. Don't let any of them stay. Don't make covenants. you remember this? Do you remember a group of people who knew this and crafted up a unique way of tricking Israel. You remember these people? Joshua chapter 9, verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, Now why would they gather a bunch of old raggedy wine skins? Why would they do that? Worn out, patched sandals on their feet. Worn out clothes. All their provisions were dry and crumbly. They got some old raggedy clothes and put them on. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a long way away. So make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? God's told us to destroy you, right? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where did you come from? And they said to him, From a long way. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did to Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us Take provisions in your hand for the journey, go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, so make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it out of our houses as food for the journey. Lie, lie, lie. Brilliant idea, but it's a lie. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new. Lie, lie, lie. What a brilliant stroke though, right? They were new when we filled them. Behold, they've burst, these garments, these sandals. We got these from Sears yesterday. Uh, And look, I mean, uh, we got these from Sears like six years ago when we left. And now look at them. They barely, they're from the 80s, right? Uh, So the men took some of the provisions, did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them, let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Three days later, they found out the truth. They were over the next hill. Brilliant strategy of the Gibeonites. And what the Gibeonites did was simply save their hides. That's what they did. They knew they had no chance. And They made a covenant with the people of Israel. And the covenant ends up they serve Israel and the Israelites serve them. But also the Israelites can't destroy them and the Israelites have to protect them. That's the covenant they made. And God said you have to keep it. You make a covenant, no matter how deceitful it was, you guys have to keep it. You need to know that story. Just keep that in your head as we start 2 Samuel chapter 21. There was a famine in the days of David for three years. Famines were fairly common to go for a whole year without water, but three years, that's extreme. Do you remember another time there was three years of famine? Famine in the days of Elijah, and it was so serious, right? Well, even in those dry places, three years is a really long time, and David figured it out. You remember how he figured it out? He was reading Deuteronomy 28, and when there's famine in the land that long, you know we've done something wrong. Self-diagnostic from, from, from that um, Deuteronomy 28. The Lord said, David sought the face of the Lord. He knew where to go to find the answer. When we sin against you, let's go ask David. And and the Lord said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Saul isn't there anymore. He's died, right? But there's blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. We have no record of that at all. It's not in Scripture. So we're going to have to fill in the gaps a little bit. The Gibeonites were those people who tricked Israel into a covenant. Sometime in the reign of Saul that we don't have any record of, Saul decided to purify the land in some way, and he attacked the Gibeonites and wiped out a bunch of them. Some kind of ethnic cleansing. My guess, and a lot of people guess this, Saul's city where he ruled from was Gibeah. Gibeon was pretty close. I don't think he wanted these foreigners near him, so he decided one day we're just going to obliterate him, and he obliterated a bunch of them in violation of the covenant of Joshua 9. Well, Saul doesn't deal with it. Saul causes the mess. Saul's the one who caused the problem, but Saul's dead, so shouldn't you forget about it? God says, I do not forget about covenants. God says, I don't let my people do this, no matter who is guilty. You might remember Achan. You remember Achan? There was a covenant. There was a thing. It's under the ban. It's my stuff. You give it to me when the the war's over. And Achan decides he's going to steal a wedge of gold and a Babylonian robe or whatever. And he steals that, thinking, what's going to hurt? And the entire nation suffered a loss at Ai, the next city, because of one man's sin. Because of Saul, who's no longer there, the people of Israel had to suffer a three-year famine. But now, David consults with God and asks, what do I need to do? Notice what he does. There's blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Joshua chapter 9, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. He wanted ethnic cleansing. He wanted only Israelites around him. Well, you can do that except for that one group that you made a covenant with. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How can, I make, how can I make this right? How can I make atonement for this, that you can now bless the heritage of the Lord? You have a grievance against us that's legitimate, and we want to make this right. The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver and gold. You can't pay us off. It's not money matters. Neither is it for us to put any person in Israel to death. We're not in a position to do that. And he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us, Saul, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, the one who wanted to exterminate us, let seven of his sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah. As he came to Gibeon from Gibeah, his city, we want to go from Gibeon to his city of Gibeah and get rid of seven of his, his male offspring. Hang them there, the chosen of the Lord, where he was from. And the king said, I'll do it. I'm hoping David consulted the Lord first. I'm assuming he did. The king spared Mephibosheth because that was another covenant that David had with him. But verse 9, the king took Verse 8, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, a concubine, Armoni and Mephibosheth, another, no, not the same one, the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholothite, And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So as harvest begins, they hang these seven offspring of Saul. I have no idea, no one knows, whether they had anything to do with the extermination themselves or not. Being in the house of Saul, it's very possible at least some of them were involved in that killing of the Gibeonites, but surely not all. But because of numbers. There's a pollution in the land, and the only way to eliminate it is to sacrifice the ones who caused it. You can't do that. Saul's dead. So you take the next closest thing, male offspring of Saul that still lived, and they hang them there. I once did a Mother's Day sermon on this. Isn't that sick? <laughs> I did a Mother's Day. I want you to listen to this next scene as the scene changes. And think of this mama. They hang them there out in the open. There's another rule in Israel. You pollute the land further when you let a hanged person hang overnight. You're not supposed to see the sunset. It's supposed to be taken care of. Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on a rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain finally fell from the heavens. She took her watch there over her two boys. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by the daytime. Peck, 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 and hurt what remained of her sons. Wouldn't let that. Scared them off. Scared the beasts away of the field by night. And she took her station there and she protected the bodies of her boys. Is that not one of the most touching things you've ever heard in your life? It's the last thing a mama could do for her sons. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. He went and he took the, the bones of Saul that were somewhere else, the bones of his son Jonathan, somewhere else. He, he, he got them back, and he brought up from there those bones where they were, gathered the bones of all those that were hanged, and buried them in the family resting place in the land of Benjamin. And when he did that, the rain fell. That's a weird story. I look at that and I go, what kind of moral comes from a story like that? I I think there's a few things you notice, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, except to say, God sees the covenants you his people make. And he's serious about them. Here's how Jesus puts it. You don't even have to promise on oath. When you say yes, I'm a witness to your yes. When you say no, I'm a witness to your no. And you are a people of mine, God says. You are a people of truth. When you make a covenant, I expect you to keep it. And what's interesting about this one is God even protects the other party that his people are in covenant with that have nothing to do with him. He punishes Israel on behalf of the Gibeonites who aren't even his people because he witnessed a covenant his people made that they broke. How serious is God about the covenants you make? He protects the other party as well. So it's interesting, isn't it, how your life of faithfulness and even your worship is disrupted He turned off the faucet, y'all, when his people didn't honor their covenants. Now, it's interesting, too. God says, you have a covenant with me, but part of your covenant with me, this is what makes to me. What's the greatest command? The greatest command is we love God. What's the second greatest command, which is right there with it, that he can't say one without the other. You also love your fellow man. Guess what happens? When you have a covenant with God and you want to honor it, and in the process of honoring it, you realize that your covenant with another person is obstructed. What happens to your relationship with God? When you come and you offer your gift before the altar, you want to, I'm right with God, I'm not right with Him. If you're not right with Him, you're not right with God either. Isn't that weird? How serious is God about our relationships with each other? He can't even say, Love the Lord your God without also saying, Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't have this right, you don't have this right, and things go amiss. So, as we said a couple weeks ago, when husbands aren't living right in covenant with their wives, their relationship with God is shut down. Unbelievable, isn't it? How serious is he about your marriage? And how you treat your spouse. How serious is he about that? Now, here's the interesting thing that I think is the clincher. When there is a breach, it must be paid. It must be paid with the blood of the guilty. You have a relationship with God. You made it at your baptism. It's a covenant with God. You make an agreement with Him. Our sin separates us from God and makes us guilty. And guess what's the only thing that can make that right? The blood of the guilty. But in that case, the difficulty with this is, if God demands to keep that requirement, we are, Have no chance, do we? Anybody in here not guilty? Raise your hand, you idiot fool. If you're not guilty of breaking a covenant, what's it require? The blood of the guilty. But our God wasn't willing to stand being separated from us. So guess what he did? He came to the human side and he gave the blood sacrifice himself. And suddenly, you're atoned for. Because here's the truth, and Romans 3 makes this clear, God couldn't just speak it away. He had to be just. He had to meet the requirement. But how can he meet the requirement without destroying us? He came himself. And as amazing as Rizpah was, think about how great God is. When he made the atonement by his own Blood. And you walk away free again. That's amazing. That's good news, and that's called the gospel. And in this story, you're given just a little glimpse of what the gospel's going to look like, even back there in 2 Samuel. And that's a way New Testament believers look at this story, and we find ourselves amazed at Jesus, even while reading a weird, obscure passage. In 2 Samuel, that's how we read Scripture. And we find ourselves thankful every time we open that Scripture, no matter how weird the story is. If there's anyone in here that because of your offense, God has a grievance against you, you've not kept your covenant that you make by creation, you are made in the image of God, you're made to image God, and when you fall short of that, your wages is death, you're doomed if that's you. You can either give up your own blood to pay that, or you can call upon the God who came in the form of Jesus and offered it for you. I really urge you to do the latter. And this, this evening, if, if you stand ready to receive that and you're ready to say his name, say the name of your Savior and be immersed in the waters of baptism to take that atonement for you, we stand ready to receive you as we stand and as we sing.